0: We're in our third message in the Soldier of the Cross. My dad was a soldier in World War II and uh, wanted to be a pilot, but he couldn't take the spins and the rollouts, and so uh, he ended up serving on the ground with the Army Air Corps. My father in law uh, was a private. Actually, he flunked the physical. He uh, fought in the Korean War, grew up in Bremen, Georgia, and uh, flunked his physical and went back and volunteered. And three weeks after getting to Korea, he was taken captive. He was marched over 200 miles into the depths of China. And on a march, which for many of those men was a death march, He carried a man on his back who was about to die so he wouldn't be just left laying on the side of the road and even carried him for another day after he was dead because he didn't want him to die and just be laying as a corpse on the side of the road. When he got in POW camp, POW camp did not follow the rules of the Geneva Convention. I think we may be the only country that does that and uh, he got sick, got pneumonia. At a house there in the prisoner of war camp, about all they got was rice. They, not one time in two and a half years as a POW did he ever see a Red Cross package. Not once, none of them ever got there. No letters came, his family thought he could have been dead. No word from him or from him to them He got sick and got pneumonia, and they threw him in this death house where they would throw the dead bodies of POWs who had been beaten and mistreated and finally died because the ground was so hard in the winter, they couldn't bury them. And so they just stacked the bodies up in there like cordwood, and they threw my father-in-law in there. And after laying with dead and decaying bodies for three weeks and not dying, they pulled him out. They wanted to cut his feet off because of frostbite, and he would not let them do it. Later on in his life, he developed pretty severe post-traumatic stress syndrome. Spent the last few years of his life either in a nursing home or in a VA hospital. He was a man who didn't have to go fight. He volunteered. There is something strangely unique about a volunteer army. Men know what they're getting into when they go. He didn't have to volunteer. He could have stayed home. He could have worked at Plantation Pipeline, had a nice, safe job. He had already flunked a physical. He could have said, well, I would have gone if I could have gone. But that wasn't his attitude. The only thing that we have of his time as a POW is a couple of pictures of him in POW camp and there's a framed spoon the one eating utensil that he had for two and a half years. It was a very tough and hard existence. In fact up until I guess the last ten years of his life he wouldn't talk about it. I mean he just you'd say nothing. I mean Terry and Chris and Paige grew up, he would never talk about it. And finally something happened with him and he started going to high schools and middle schools and talking about his experiences. And I think he wanted to do it to remind those students that your freedom came with a great price. And that I was willing to be in a POW camp for two and a half years and maybe die there so that you could have the freedom to live in America. Sometimes we think that the church is a volunteer army, and some people volunteer and some people don't. Some people just show up and like the parade and the, you know, the stuff, but all of us are called to be soldiers. And all of us are in a battle. And all of us are going to be attacked. And at times the enemy is going to take some people captive, and he's going to shame them and shame their name and their testimony, maybe even shame the church. But we are called to be soldiers for Christ. We are called to be in a battle. In fact, our vocation is Jesus Christ. What we do for a living is our other vocation. But our main vocation has to be Jesus Christ. Because when we enlisted, you remember that little kid song we used to sing, I may never march in the infantry fight and, you know, shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. You remember that? Now that just sounds too militant. We have major denominations that have taken out hymns like Onward Christian Soldiers because their leadership says it's just too militant. Hey, if Paul said we're in a battle, And if Paul told us to put on on armor, if it's not too militant for God's word, it's not too militant for us to talk about. We don't need to be ashamed. You don't meet soldiers in a parade, and you don't meet soldiers who have gone through the training who are ashamed. They've paid a price. And and when they go to boot camp, what they thought it was going to be and what it is are two totally different things. But, But they're not ashamed of what they went through. In fact, almost going through it is a badge of honor. And so when Paul is writing to this young, timid young man, he's saying, don't get out of line. Go through your training. Get ready for the battle. I'm not always going to be here to give you orders, but when I'm gone, you make sure you know how to carry out the orders that you've been given. Our nation grieved a few weeks ago. At a helicopter shot down with a number of Navy SEALs on it because we know the price that those men pay to reach that level of expertise as soldiers. They are trained machines. God doesn't call us to be trained machines. He calls us to be trained soldiers who understand that every day we're walking into a world where the enemy wants to take us out. Where the enemy wants to destroy us, wants to destroy our testimony, wants to destroy the witness of the church, wants to shame the name of Jesus Christ. And he's not picky about who he uses. He'll use anybody. And so as we look at chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, in the previous chapter, he said, retain the standard, uh, verse 13, of sound words which you heard from me in the faith, and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard Through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Retain, hold fast, keep the standard of sound words. Now, I I would just say simply the best way to understand that phrase, the standard of sound words, is there there is a world of difference between having opinions and having convictions. Opinions can change. If you don't think opinions can change, just watch the news every week on the latest whatever, Rasmussen, Gallup, name the poll. Up and down and up and down and up and down. A fickle crowd, depending on what mood they're in and what the news has been for that day, will give you their opinion. Opinions can change. Convictions are those things we are willing to die for. And when we have, con- so that, the, the thing is, we can have a lot of opinions about things. I've, I've got opinions. In fact, even if you don't ask me, I might give it to you. But uh, I've got opinions, but I've got few convictions because my convictions are narrowed down to Christ and the church and the gospel. Because those are the things that are eternal. And so Paul says that we are to maintain and retain those things in faith and love. And then as he begins to move into chapter 2, here's Paul thinking, and I've got to think, just in my imagination, I've got to think that Paul is somewhere in his mind going back to the stories that he was very familiar with. In fact, he would have memorized all of them, and the stories of Moses and the passing of the baton to Joshua. And Joshua learning and walking under the ministry of Moses and seeing how he led and seeing what he did and And realizing that Moses was going to die and Joshua was going to take over Paul had to have been having those same feelings thinking I'm about to leave this earth I'm about to die for me to live as Christ and die as I mean, don't feel sorry for me that I'm about to die because I'm going to go be with Jesus but Timothy I've done too much and I've put too much in you for you to drop the ball now. And so he's encouraging him. Can I tell you that every person that's ever taught you in Sunday school, every sermon that you've ever listened to, has been the investment of someone into your life. Somebody has taken the time to prepare and to teach and to train you so that you can have a stronger witness for Jesus Christ. And that goes to the people that work in preschool with the one-year-olds that teach them that just Jesus loves them and they do it by showing them love. To middle school and high school and college and senior adults, whatever the age group, to a discipleship group, to an FCA group, to a campus crusade or a young life, whatever it is, people have invested in us. You know, w- when you see great people, typically great people have had other great people invest in them. They, and the, the key to them is they have been good learners. The the people that invested in them were good teachers, but they have also been teachable. They've been good learners. They've listened to those that have invested in them that have taught them. I, I still go back and think of the moments in my life when a Sunday school teacher that thought I was not paying attention in the 10th grade. And I can remember Dr. Smith, he was a dentist, And Dr. Smith called on me to pray, and I was so spiritually minded in the 10th grade. This will tell you how old I am. I was so spiritually minded at the end of the Sunday school class in the 10th grade, I prayed, and Lord, let Joe Namath and the the Jets beat the Baltimore Colts this afternoon in the Super Bowl. That was the length of my prayer life. But that guy loved me. And he prayed for me, and he would come up to me after church was over and talk to me. And he knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be, but he didn't throw me out under the bus. He loved me. And the last time I saw him, I was preaching a revival in my home church. And he said to me, always believed in you. You see, somebody in the 10th grade you never met and you will never meet until you get to heaven decided I was worth investing in. Somebody decided you were worth investing in. That's why they don't just come and sit in a Sunday school class. That's why they teach a Sunday school class because they believe that you are worth investing in. Uh, When we get through with refresh in uh, March of next year, uh, I'm taking, I've already told them that they don't have a choice I'm taking Garrett and uh, Ross Cook and Stephen Durvin, and after we get through with Refresh, we're staying in the mountains for an additional three days just to talk and for me to spend some time with these guys that have come out of ministry into this church and just to try to pour into them and talk to them and listen to them because one day I'll be gone. Now, I've already basically said to them what I said in their ordination, you mess up, I will ask God to allow me to come back from the dead and I will take all of you out. (laughs) But you see, because somebody invested in me, they didn't invest in me for me to hoard it and to hold on to it. They invested in me for me to share it with other people. And and so that's where Paul is going now as, as he gets into 2 Timothy. And the first thing he says to him is be strong. This exhortation to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus in chapter 2 and verse 1 is a summary statement, really, of everything he said in chapter 1. He doesn't tell him how to be slick. He doesn't tell him how to be cool. He doesn't tell him how to be cutting edge. He doesn't tell him how to read the marketing signs. He doesn't tell him how to develop a strategy He says, you be strong. And the first thing he says to be strong is is in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. You see, you and I cannot be strong unless we have been strengthened. You don't get strong overnight. You don't walk in uh, to the gym and say, put as many weights on there as you want to. I'm ready. You have to build up to it. To be strong, you have to be strengthened. And being strong is necessary because of the demands that are placed on us as soldiers of the cross. Now, all of us are familiar with some of the great texts in the Bible, and we, we quote them well. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. My grace is sufficient for you. The the reality is sometimes it's easier for us to quote those than it is for us to live those. You see, to be strong in the grace of God is to be strong in the sufficiency of God's grace. That God's grace is not just sufficient to save us. God's grace is sufficient to strengthen us and to sanctify us. Not only to secure for us an eternal salvation, but to secure for us the power to live daily up to the demands that God has given us. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, how did Christ get in you to be the hope of glory? By the grace of God. So I'm not strong in my own strength. I'm not strong in my own will. I'm strong in the grace of God, which means a daily dependence on him. I report to him. For orders. I report to him for duty. He is able, he is adequate, I'm not able, and I'm inadequate. God is my strength. Second thing he says is be strategic. Chapter 2 and verse 2. Now we looked at this in the discipleship series a few months ago, but I want us to come back to it for just a few moments. Be strategic. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's telling us not just to be strong, but to be strategic. Now, how do we become strategic? People that are strategic are, number one, willing to suffer hardships. Willing to suffer hardships. Now, you see, I... I don't I can't do this. Well, let's just pretend. Okay. Let's can you pretend with me for a minute? Let's just pretend that I could go out to the Marine Corps logistics base They don't have any Uniforms for guys as out of shape as me But let's just say they had one and let's say they had a pair of dress blues And I walked in here with a pair of dress blues on and I'd say you know I'm ready. I'm a marine You would look at me and say you're out of shape and you're lazy You see, I haven't been willing to endure the hardship that it takes to be the few, the proud, the Marines. I've got a desk job. You see, a strategic person is willing to suffer hardship. Paul was willing to go whenever, wherever, and to whoever, no matter whatever the price so that he could share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a strategic person is willing to suffer hardships. I, I, remember, I remember the first time I went witnessing at the beach club on the, on the uh, beach boulevard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. It was a bar. Okay? I'm young. I'm saved. We decided to go witness at a bar. Now, when you're 18 and you show up at a bar that's known for how many times the cops show up? You better have your game face on. And I had my glasses on, so I was hoping nobody would punch me. So, I, I, you know, there were a couple of guys out there, man. I remember there was one guy named Steve, and he was out there in the front, and he's had this old guy, you know, he had a tall can of beer in his hand, and he had this old guy. Man, he's on him, he is talking to him about Jesus. And I'm sitting there saying, well, I'm going to take the safe road. So I went into the bar and I went into the bathroom and I unrolled the toilet paper and I rolled up tracks all inside the toilet paper. Now, this is a unique way to witness, folks. I got to tell you something. I, I rolled them up all inside the toilet paper so that when people would go in there and they would pull the track down, it, it, the question on the front of the track was, are you going to hell? I figured in a bar, it's a good question to ask. So I just, you know, I put about 35 of those in there. Well, I went out, and this guy meets me, and he starts pushing me around. And then he spit right in my face. And I went to my youth minister, and I was trying to tell him what I had suffered for the cause of Christ. Because this guy had spit right in my face. And he said, I said, James, I said, this guy spit in my face. He said, oh, get over it. What he was telling me is you hadn't suffered anything for the gospel. They didn't take you out and crucify you. They didn't take you out and beat you to a pulp. A guy spit in your face. If that's the worst that ever happens to you for sharing the gospel, then you're in pretty good company (laughs) as far as people that don't suffer hardship. Number two, they stand on God's promises. They don't stand on their feelings. They stand on God's promises. If we're going to be strategic, then we need to be strategic about the word of God. And knowing what God says, because a good soldier knows how to take apart his rifle and his pistol and put it back together. And he can do it blindfolded. We need to be strategic that we don't have to say, let me call the church and see what the church says about that. That we are familiar enough with our offensive weapon, the Word of God, that we know how to put it to good use when we're in the middle of a battle. Number three. They don't get bogged down in secondary skirmishes. They don't get bogged down in secondary skirmishes. They keep the main thing the main thing. The, the main thing is to push through the front, not to fight little skirmish battles that are not going to matter to anything. Number four, they study the Word, which is tied again to number two, they stand on the promises of God. And number five, those who are strategic know how to choose between good and better and best. Now there are a lot of terms that the scriptures use about us that are not very complimentary. Uh, God calls us sheep and all sheep do is look down for their next bite. They never worry about what's ahead of them. That's why they can fall off a cliff and that's why they need a shepherd. God calls us sometimes like we're donkeys, which means we're stubborn and resistant and hard-headed. But here, I believe God gives us one of the greatest compliments he can give us when he calls us soldiers because we're in a battle and he has entrusted us to be on the front lines of this battle. And so we are called a soldier. And what a soldier knows to do is to watch and to look and to view the horizon and to be prepared and anticipate that the enemy is going to come and try to attack A soldier does not turn his back when he's stationed on the wall. When he's on a sentry line, he does not turn his back. He always keeps his focus that there is something or someone out there that if they get by him, there could be serious damages to the rest of the troops. And so here's... Paul telling him to be strategic. And when you read chapter 2 and verse 2, you see four generations there. It's perpetual. It's unending. It goes around the clock that, that someone is invested in you and you invest in other people. And Paul says all of this in the presence of many witnesses. Paul was probably remembering the day when they laid hands on him and sent him out to be a missionary. And Paul says to Timothy, you find other people to invest in. You find other people to disciple. You find other people to mentor. When I was in youth ministry for about 15 years, one of the things I did was I would have high school kids mentor and disciple middle school kids. I would have them lead them because they were a couple of years ahead. First thing it did, it made my high school kids think about how they were living as an example in front of those middle school kids. And so I would have them, and I wouldn't I would just let any of them do it. If they weren't serious about it, they had to sit down with me and talk about it. But when I got through talking to them, I said, okay, I want you to take her. And I didn't let them even pick. I said, I want you to get matched up with her. I want you to get matched up with him. And I want you to have a Bible study with them. And I want you to check on them. And I want you to call them after school. And I want you to make sure that they're doing okay. And at one point, I was in charge of college, high school, and middle school. And I'd say to the college kids, I want you to call the high school kids on Friday and say, you going to be all right Friday night or do I need to come? Why? Because we had invested too much for somebody to lose their testimony in one night. And so you find these people to invest in. Now, I want you to, to, to buy uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, I want you to write down and then turn to Psalm 78 in verse 5. Psalm 78 and verse 5, because Psalm 78 and verse 5 is an Old Testament parallel to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Psalm 78 and verse 5, if you want to know why we say that Sherwood is committed to reaching the next generation and whoever wants the next generation the most will get them, this is why. This is why we do what we do. 2 Timothy 2, 2, Psalm 78 in verse 5, you got it? Everybody there? For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. You get it? Fathers to sons, sons to grandsons, grandsons to great-grandsons. I mean, you got generations passing on the laws of God, the word of God, the testimony of Jacob, the law in Israel. you got them passing it on. And so Paul is saying, you find people that are able to teach. In other words, make sure that you're pouring into somebody that, just, that wants to be poured into. You're not just pouring into somebody that's just trying to check the box, like Mark mentioned earlier. But it's somebody that really wants to move on with God and wants to be serious about the things of God. Now, w- when he uses this phrase, able to teach, that is found three times in Paul's letters. It's found here, the able to teach others also. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, it refers to an overseer in the church who is able to to teach. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach. Now what is he to teach? What he has heard before many witnesses. So the key is he's to be faithful to what he's heard. There, there's a way to to put that. In other words, if something is served in the kitchen When you put it on the table, it ought to be what was served in the kitchen. If you're being fed by God, His Word, and it's food to you, then when you deliver it to the next person, don't try to change the menu. Just teach what you know. Don't teach what you think. Teach the Word of God. Now, let me give you another illustration. Not a soldier illustration, but, but an athlete illustration. You ever watched a relay race where they have to pass the baton? Okay, what happens? You drop the baton, you lose the race. Very seldom do you see somebody, if there are four runners and they're in a lane and they're assigned and they have a baton, everything has to do with the handoff. It doesn't matter who the last runner is, although he ought to be the one with the best kick at the end, every person has to be able to pass the baton, and so Paul is saying, When it's time for you to hand off, make sure you don't drop it and make sure they don't drop it and that they will be the kind of people that run with it until they get to the next person and hand it off to them. So Paul is telling that we are to be strategic and then we're to be serious. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of the crops. Now, we've already talked about suffering hardship, so I won't dwell there hardship is different for different people. I mean, we have missionaries in countries we cannot even name to keep them safe. I don't know if you understand this or know this, but every one of our missionaries now goes through a level two security training, and it's tough. Level two security is not to know what to do when you go through TSA. Every missionary that goes through the IMB goes through a training to know what to do if you get captured or kidnapped. How you are to respond. And so when you see missionaries, don't think about them like you used to think about them. These people would show up in their native costumes and look weird. And you'd say, wow, when, you know, do those people live a real life? They are people that are on the front lines and sometimes in places where their lives are in danger every day of their life. And they are trained. To be soldiers and to be prepared for hardship. Now, their hardship's not the same as ours. Our hardship is not the same as those who live in persecuted countries. We could not imagine what it would be like to go to church in Beijing, China, where every week there are 20 to 30 church members being arrested. We could not imagine what it would be like to have been in Russia in the Cold War, where pastors were arrested and stayed in jail for 10 and 15 years and came out emaciated, barely alive, barely breathing, and would go right back to their church and preach the gospel, which got them thrown in jail in the first time. We, we live in a different world. But Jesus did say, all those who live for me will suffer persecution. And so the reality is, is if we're not being persecuted, if somebody is not offended by the gospel being lived out in our lives, then we are not suffering hardship. I'm not saying go look for a fight. I am saying if everybody you meet is sweet and kind and loves you and nobody ever slams the door in your faith and nobody ever cusses you out and nobody ever says anything to you about they don't want to hear about Jesus anymore from you, then you're not suffering hardship and you're not being a good soldier. That's how we measure ourselves. Well, I want everybody to like me. They're not all going to like you. They wouldn't like you if you agreed with them on everything. We are called to suffer hardship. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. In what ways are you facing difficulties because of your commitment to Christ? In what ways are you facing difficulties because of your commitment to Christ? Only you can answer that. In what ways would life be easier or harder If you weren't serious about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in what ways would your life be easier or would it be harder? Howard Hendricks used to tell the story about a guy who came to him and he said, Oh, Dr. Hendricks, you need to pray for me. Said I go to work and I try to share my faith and, and, and I'm the only one there and they just always are just, cussing me and making fun of me and laughing at me and they just think I'm a wimp and I just wish you pray for me that I could get a job somewhere else. And Hendricks said, bless God, man. He must trust you enough to make you the only Christian in that business. I get out there and go back to work. I mean, he didn't get any sympathy, <laughs> not any. Here's what one commentator said in my community we have been much more concerned with making the gospel relevant to our lifestyle than we have been with making our lives relevant to the gospel. And so he gives us three illustrations. First of all, a serious soldier, a serious soldier. Any of you ever been to uh, Arlington National Cemetery and watched the men who guard the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? If you've never been there, you ought to drive up there just to watch that. And when you really ought to watch it is when they're fully in their dress uniform and they do that exchange and it's 100 degrees. And I mean when that guy gets through marching that line back and forth and back and forth, he does not go as soon as he walks off of that piece of carpet. He doesn't go, man, I am so tired. I'm just going to sit down right here. He's a serious soldier. By the way, to do that, you cannot drink or smoke or cuss for your entire life just to guard the tomb of a dead man. And it doesn't matter if a hurricane is going through, if a a hailstorm is going through, or a blizzard is going through, they're always there. So what is a serious soldier? First of all, a serious soldier is free to serve. They're free to serve. There are no entanglements. Why would you put those kind of regulations on the man guarding a tomb of an unknown soldier? Because you don't want him to come into into work with a hangover. You don't want him to come into work not taking seriously the call that is on him to do that. So he's free to serve. Secondly, he has the fortitude to stand. The fortitude to stand. It's tough, it's hard, but he stands his watch, he stands his guard. Thirdly, he is faithful to the Savior, verse 4, that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. You see, there's a way that you leave the military. You can leave it honorably or dishonorably. And the only way we're going to meet Jesus and hear well done is if we have served him with honor. And with distinction, not only a serious soldier, but a disciplined athlete in verse five, a disciplined athlete, the Greeks in the Greek games, only the Greeks could run in the Greek games and they would have to endure 10 months of strenuous discipline and exercise to be able to run in the race. And so when he talks in verse five about the one that competes or King James says strives or contends, uh, I, I, here's the word that I would use there. The, the disciplined athlete is all in. They're all in. They don't play three quarters and then want to quit. They're all in until the whistle blows. They keep playing. Let me tell you the difference between winning and losing in athletics. The extra step, the extra mile the extra discipline. You know what's going to show up in the NFL after this lockout and all this stuff that's been going on in the NFL? Here's what's going to show up. There are going to be a lot of players who are going to be injured. You know why? Because during the lockout, they didn't work out. They partied. They ran around. They did whatever they wanted to do, lived like they wanted to do, because they still had some money. But if you read the paper uh, the other day, Matthew Stafford coming back, and if he can stay healthy, Detroit Lions believe that they've got a chance to compete, but Stafford has been injured in so many games that every day he was working with his receivers during the lockout just to make sure they had their timing ready. Guess what? If they play against a team with a defensive back or a safety that didn't work out, the chances are that old boy's going to go for about 80 yards for a touchdown. You know why? Because he was disciplined and the other guy wasn't. An athlete has to be disciplined. He does more than expected. How do you win a gold medal? Sometimes it's talent, and sometimes you just give more effort than the other person. You don't quit when the whistle blows. You keep going. Now, you all understand that? Those of you that played sports, you just keep going. You play hard. You, you, know, you know, give me 60 minutes. You play hard. You ever watch people just walk down the court with a basketball because they're tired and they just want to take a little breather? And watch them play a team that runs a fast break all the time. And watch how quickly they get gassed while the other team is blowing them off the court. Why? Discipline. A disciplined athlete. The only athletes that win the prize are the disciplined athletes who keep the rules, who have self-control and then there's the disciplined farmer I should have had Ray come up here and do this one a disciplined farmer understands something in verse 6 are early hours hard work you can't control the weather you can't control the bugs you can't control drought you can't control the rain and it demands patience so Paul gives three illustrations a serious soldier, a disciplined athlete, a disciplined farmer. And he says the farmer has to work while it is day. And all of these bring a reward. If you look at it, the soldier pleases his commander, the athlete wins the prize, and the farmer gets the harvest. They all get a reward. And so then in verses uh, 8 through 13, he, he starts talking about Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. And so, what Paul does in verses 8 through 13, he gives Timothy three motivations to serve God faithfully. The first one is Jesus Christ. I mean, that ought to be motivation enough. Jesus Christ, descendant of David, he's talking about his humanity. Jesus served the father faithfully. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Secondly, he is risen from the dead. That talks about his victory that he accomplished what he came to accomplish to die for our sins and to rise from the grave. And so there's his victory. And what did he do? He met the father, he received the prize and now he sees a harvest of souls. And so, When he's referring to Christ, he's showing Christ as an example of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer for all of them. And then Paul himself, an example and an encouragement. Paul is saying to Timothy, the same power is available to you. The same power is available to you. By the way, I don't know if you've thought about this lately. But the Apostle Paul didn't have any more of the Holy Spirit than you have or than I have not any not one ounce not one half of one percent more but the Holy Spirit had more of Paul than he has of some of us you see it's not do I have enough of the Holy Spirit you've already got what you need in the Holy Spirit the question is does the Holy Spirit have what he needs From you. Are you serious? Are you strategic? Are you strong? Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. We have the joy of having some new people being presented tonight, and I want us to pray in a moment and uh, we're going to present them, and then we're going to sing before we go out tonight and before uh, we go to shake hands with our new members. So, Mark, let's do just like the chorus of something uh, before we, uh, we go out. But uh, I want to give you a chance, if you're going to be presented tonight, just to make your way to my left and your right over here up against this wall, and we want to get you uh, ready for us to share the good news of you being a part of this church family